Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 2, 1 to 15. This is the word of God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when he saw the way he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she called him no longer, she took him a basket made of bristles and dubbed him with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the doctor of Paro came down to the bed at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she showed the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. When she opened it, she showed the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to the parish doctor, Shall I go and call your nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Paro's doctor said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Paro's doctor said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wage. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to, to Paro's doctor, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because he said, I drew him out of the water, thus said the Lord. Thank you. Friends, let's pray one more time before we uh, go to our sermon. Father, there's a lot in our passage today packed in. Help me be clear. Help me present it in a way that is understandable, but yet still faithful to the text and to the flow of the narrative. And Father, first and foremost, help us see Jesus. Help us fall in deeper love with him and glorify you as we study your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wanted to emphasize again some of the announcements. I don't think I need to because they're all really exciting to me and they're all really important. So just, you know, look at them again. If you took pictures of them, know the details. If you want any more questions about them, email CCC and we'll respond to you about signups or different things like that if you miss some of the details uh, for Padea or for the dinner with Joe and, and, and things like that. Okay. So friends, let's continue in our series through the life of Moses. We're going to be going through the first few chapters of Exodus. And what I think God hopes for us to see today, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is yes, he wants us to see the details of the narrative. Yes, of course, he wants us to see the logical flow of the passage, what the original author, Moses, hoped to say to the original readers, the Israelites, and we want to derive meaning from there. But, it, but if that's all we see today, I think we'd miss it. We'd miss the bigger point of the story. A pastor once described the Old Testament like a, a small seed of a big tree. Okay, the seed has all the chemical compositions, has all the DNA and all the, the, the elements that a seed needs to grow into a huge full-blown tree. But studying the Old Testament without having in view the New Testament, we'd be studying only the seed form of the truth and miss the glorious tree it's trying to show us. You following? And the Old Testament passage we're studying today is, so to speak, the seed. And I think we can best understand this passage if we already know what the full-blown tree concept is about. Okay? Let me, let me explain what I mean. If we already know the corresponding theme in the New Testament that this passage in the Old Testament is about, it will help us understand it better. And the New Testament corresponding theme this passage is about is the theme, I think, of being born again. 
being born again. Do you remember that concept? Jesus talked about it in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to him at night, said, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And he said, you must be born again. And he was all confused. What does that mean? I can't re-enter into my mom's womb. You must be born again. Peter talks about it. We just studied 1 Peter in chapter 1. He said, if you want to know God, you've got to be born again. Paul talks about it with a bit of a different maybe angle. He said, you, you, must, you must be a new creature. The old self must die, and the new must come to life. Apparently, it's an important theme. All the New Testament authors talk about it, and Jesus himself speaks about it, and we find that seed form of that theme, the being born again, here in our passage today. Where? How? Let's, let's dive in. Point one, being born again. Point two, what it feels like. Point three, what it takes. Being born again, what it, what it feels like, what it takes. All right, point one. Let's remember first, before we dive into Exodus chapter 2, what, what's going on here in Exodus. What's this story about? So Israel, right, God's people in the Old Testament, went to Egypt to escape a famine, and a few years later, they started to grow in numbers. They started to give birth left and right. They started to fill up the land. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, got really nervous. He's saying, okay, there's too many of these Israelites now. They're, they're, they're gonna, there's going to be an uproar. There's going to be a coup. They're going to take over our nation. We've got to stop them from growing. So if you remember in Exodus chapter 1, he made this terrible command, Pharaoh, to, to kill all new male babies of Israel so that the Israelites would have no males to marry their women, and the Israelite woman will end up marrying the male Egyptians, and eventually they'll be assimilated into, as an Egyptian, and there goes your immigration influx problem, right? That's the plan. That's the idea. Now, chapter 2. Under the backdrop of this dark genocide attempt, in the midst of this fear and anxiety and slavery that God's people experience in chapter 1, unto them a child is born, and, and, and the story, the movie screen, if, if you picture it that way, hones in to this one male baby who escaped this genocide, Moses, who eventually, as we know, will deliver God's people out of slavery of Egypt. And here's how Moses' birth is described, verse 1 to 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made out of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. The theme of rebirth or being reborn is everywhere here. Let me show you. Look at verse 2. Look at how Moses was described. And when she, referring to Moses' mom, saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The word fine there is literally the word good in the Hebrew, okay? He's a good child. So after she saw that Moses was good, she hid him. But this should make you wonder, what does good mean? What does it mean he's a good child? Surely it can't be referring to his physical goodness, like he's good-looking, Right? It can't refer to that, because what would be the implication? It's terrible. If he was an ugly child, the mom would have given him to Pharaoh. Like, like sure, that's not it, okay? Okay, maybe good is not a physical, like, good-looking, but maybe it's good character. But that can't be either. He's a baby. How much of his character can a mom know at this point? He eats, poops, and cries. That, that's all a baby does. So it can't be good and good-looking. It's probably not good in character or personality. So then what is it? It's such an odd description. 
even if the mom just saw Moses as good, like generally good, you know, a mom just finds the baby good. That's such a, it's obvious. Why, what mom doesn't find their baby to be a good? I mean, when they're two or three years old, that's a different story. But when you're a baby, duh, obviously you're, so why put this effort to point out something that kind of, why put that term good in there? Well, the author is trying to make a theological emphasis here. He's trying to explicitly or perhaps implicitly connect Moses to somebody else. Remember, all of Exodus chapter 1 we studied last week, it kept going back to Genesis. It kept referring to things in Genesis. That's happening again right now in Exodus chapter 2. There's another connection to Genesis that the author is trying to make here. Do you remember when the word good was used to describe somebody in Genesis? Adam and Eve. Right after God made Adam and Eve, he saw God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The author awkwardly inserts this description about Moses that can't be referring to good physical looks or good character or just good in general. So why, why do that? He's trying to make a theological claim, connect Moses to Adam to signify that God is going to use Moses in the same way that he used Adam. They both were born to recreate a new people, a new humanity, so to speak. Adam to bring a people who was supposed to be God's people into a new existence of life, right, through Adam, and Moses to redeem God's people out of slavery into a new existence of freedom. That's the point. But you're thinking, and you should be thinking, that, that's not really the same, though. Adam actually birthed a new people into existence. All Moses did is deliver an already existing people out of slavery. That's not the same. Just delivering somebody out of slavery is not equal to bringing them into existence. Is it? Is it? Perhaps God is trying to tell us that it is. To be brought out of slavery into freedom as represented by Moses is the same as being a new creature out of nothing, so to speak, as represented in Adam. Now, if at this point you're not convinced yet, I wasn't either, okay? Until I saw another corresponding theme that relates to being born again. Okay, the unlikely birth narrative. That's what we see in Moses. There's an, there's an unlikely birth that took, that took place. This situation in Moses' birth, he was, he was born in an unlikely manner. There, there was a pharaoh that wanted to kill all the male babies. The situation surrounding his birth made it almost impossible for him to come into existence unless God intervened, which he did, as we saw in the passage. This is another connection to Genesis. Can you think of another character in Genesis who also underwent an unlikely birth narrative? Someone else in Genesis who would not have existed unless God's sovereign hand intervened. Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, remember? Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham was 100. Unlikely birth. Impossible even. Unlikely birth narrative. Unless God's sovereign hand intervened. Okay, so why connect Moses to Isaac then? Well, what did God do through Isaac? God birthed a whole new nation, Israel, that did not previously exist. Again, Moses delivering God's people out of slavery is equated to the birth of a whole new people that previously did not exist, new birth. One last thing I'll point out about this, then I'll move on. Verse 3. This is how Moses' mom hid Moses. When she could not hide him no, no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. Okay. Stick with me. The basket that Moses was put in, in Hebrew, it's, it's tebah, which means literally ark. <laughs> Ring any bells? Can you think of an ark in Genesis? 
right? Sailing through the body of water, Noah. Okay, you're, now you're thinking you're just trying to make connections here. I promise you I'm not. Look, look at the materials that's used to make Moses' basket or ark in verse 3. Pitch. Pitch is very strong uh, sap from trees, okay? And if you process it, it kind of has like this tar-like substance. Here's a list of materials God commanded for Noah to use while making his ark. Genesis 6.14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. This is to, uh, sorry, this is to Noah. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. Both Noah and Moses was on an ark. They were both sailing through uncertain waters. Both used the same material to make the ark. It's, this is a connection. I'm not making this up. And what was Noah's role? Of course, again, he birthed a whole new humanity into existence after it was wiped out by the flood. See, the theme of rebirth and new creation is really thick here. This is the claim of verses 1 to 3, that Moses' act of delivering God's people out of slavery is as significant, has the same weight and the same reality as Adam's act, who birthed a whole new people into a new existence, as Isaac's act of birthing a whole new nation into a new existence, and Noah's act of birthing a whole new humanity into existence. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. Why in the world does this matter to us today? What is this passage pointing to? Well, let's fast forward now. We've been looking backwards, right, from Exodus to Genesis. Now let's, let's fast forward. Can you think about, in the New Testament, another character in the Bible who experienced an unlikely birth? Jesus. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, was it after or before her marriage was consummated? Before. God wrote in another unlikely birth narrative, and, and think about it, what was happening during Jesus' birth when he was a baby? There was also a political ruler at the time, not Pharaoh of Egypt, but Herod of Rome, who gave a command to do what? That every new male Jewish baby is to be killed. Read Matthew. And, and he was scared that his position of power is going to be overturned. Okay, and what was Jesus' role? His role is to be the ultimate deliverer of God's people out of the slavery, not of Egypt, but of sin, to the promised land. So Moses here is not only connected backward uh, to these characters, but ultimately forward to Jesus. Here's the point. Here's the point. I think many people have the perception today that to receive Christ, to be a Christian, however you want to call it, to be delivered out of the slavery of sin into freedom with God, right? When you receive Christ, that's what happens. I think a lot of us think it's just like one other step in life. You know, at first we might have lived a life in a bad way and morally, and then we grew up a little bit, we become a little bit wiser, we sober up. And then what do we do? Okay, we want to start improving our lives. So what do I do? Okay, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not in my young 20s anymore. I'm in my 30s. I'm in my 40s now. I'm going to improve my life. So I'm, I guess I'll get connected to church. And then I'm going to decide to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and as if it's like one of these things, one of the steps in life. But what the Bible is claiming here, and it's a very controversial claim, it's saying, no, no. <laughs> Receiving Jesus Christ to be delivered out of sin into freedom is not one of the steps we make in life, but it's like going from death to life. In other words, when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not just a moment you made a good decision in life. 
That's the moment you took your first breath. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and make this point more vivid by a rather long side road. Stick with me, I think it'll be helpful, okay? Fancy word, anthropology. What's anthropology? It's a study of humanity, our origin, our nature, what makes human being, what, what our makeup is, and psychiatrists, doctors, scientists, therapists have for ages been trying to figure out what are we? How do we get better? What is, how do we define well-being? Okay? And the worst kind of therapy or treatments usually is caused because the therapist or the, or the doctor or the, or just, just focus on only one aspect of what it means to be human. For example, emotionally charged therapy. They would say, we are, we're, we're mainly emotional beings. Okay, so for I need to really get to your emotions. That that's I'm not saying it's bad. It's good, but sometimes if that's all we do, that's that's not good. Okay, so you know we all have I think most of us daddy issues, right? Um, Elena will too. Elena right now thinks I'm much better than I really am, because <laughs> she's three years old. At one point, she's gonna realize I'm not all that, and health for her health for her looks like she has to learn how to love me in my imperfection. Okay. That was, I don't know why I said, okay. So, <laughs> emotionally charged therapy, you know, a client will come into the room, you know, say daddy issues, and I'll say, oh man, that must be really hard for you. You know, an emotional charged therapist would go, you know, you see that empty chair right there? Picture your dad sitting there. And they're like, oh, you know? And then you go, what would you tell him? And then he would just flip the chair. No, he would just, you know, he would sometimes they would tell you, you find all kinds of emotions. That's not bad. I've used that in the past. But sometimes if we focus, if all we are is just emotional beings, that could be dangerous. Okay, I'll move on here quicker. Behavioral therapy. Say we're, we're primarily working beings. We're volitional beings. Okay, do something for your career. Make, your, make something of yourself. Make a mark on this world. Then you'll, you'll feel better. Cognitive therapy, right? Say that we're primarily thinking beings. We're not just emotional or volitional. We're, we're, we're thinking beings. So they would, well-being for them is to change the way you think. You know, you come in to a counselor's room or you, you hang out with somebody or a friend and then you just went through a breakup and you're really sad. And you go to the person and you say, oh man, I just lost my girlfriend. Oh, it's like, you're really sad. And your friend says, no, you didn't. And you're like, what, I didn't? No, she lost you. <laughs> and you're like, bam, you know, yeah, she did lose me. You know, so think, it, it, happiness, change the way you think, okay? You're primarily thinking beings. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing to do that. I've used that in the past, but that's not all, we're not just all that. <laughs> Okay? There's more to us than just sticks on a brain. Moralistic therapy or moral beings. If you make moral choices, you're going to feel better about yourself. Last two, substance therapy. All we are is physical beings. It's all about balancing the brain chemicals. You know, here's a pill to make the monster go away. Okay? There's a pill for everything. And, and you do all these... That's not a bad thing. I'm not against that. But that's not all that we are. We are more than just physical beings. Last one, nuthetic therapy, the bad kind of nuthetic therapy, okay? There's a good kind and there's a bad kind. It's just, we're saying we're all just spiritual beings. So just, you know, you're sad, pray, you know? Uh, you, you're anxious, fast. It's like, so that, and that's all that, that we are. Just read the Bible. I mean, okay, so there's a bad kind of that. There's a good. My point is that the best kind of therapy is a kind of therapy that is based on our worldview that all that we are 
It's all of those things. We're physical, rational, emotional, spiritual, volitional, social, thinking, moral beings, and it's all interconnected. And one is not more real than the other. Oh, less, less real than the other. That's, that's exactly how the Bible describes us. We're still on this long side road, okay? So stick with me. Keep that main point in mind. Stick with me. We'll, 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 we'll circle all the way around. Think about how God, what's a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of man? Think about how God first made Adam. We're physical. We're, we're material. We're, we're made out of the earth. So there's a physicality about us, okay? We're spiritual. God breathed life into us. We have a soul. We're physical. We're spiritual. And the spiritual and physical are just as real. We're volitional. We're made to work. Adam, you're supposed to tend the garden, right? Make it beautiful. Cultivate it, okay? We're social. It is not good for man to be alone, okay? There's a romanticness there, but I think also refers to how we are as, as social beings. We're cognitive. God communicated to us through human languages, and we name, Adam named the animals, okay? We're emotional, Adam named the animals, and then he saw Eve. What did he say? Bird, fly, fish, and saw Eve. What did he say? He didn't name her. He burst into poetry. The first love song ever written, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We're emotional. We're all of those things. And everything's interconnected, and not one aspect is more or less real than the other, including, here's my point, the spiritual Think about when Adam sinned, okay? That's a spiritual issue, right? The spiritual aspect and how it's interconnected to everything else in Genesis 3. Adam cognitively made a decision to volitionally eat the fruit and morally disobey God. Because of that, it ruined his social and emotional relationship with Eve, and it spiritually broke the relationship he had with God, and that caused him to experience a physical death, something he was never meant to experience, Okay? So if you have a biblical anthropology, when you think about your well-being, it's not just enough to pay attention to your brain chemicals and blood pressure and cholesterol levels. It's not enough to just think about your moral behavior, your emotional state, your, your relationship state, your career. You have to look at the spiritual. That is just as real as any of those things. And when Jesus and when Paul and when Peter says, you are spiritually dead before Christ... That is real death. He's not trying to be cute and poetic. It's real. It's an aspect of who you are. It's a spiritual aspect, but it's a very real aspect. But see, we don't believe that. We don't treat spiritual death or the spiritual aspect as as urgent or as as real as others, like the physical ones, because it's not immediately noticeable. You can spot emotional death from a mile away, the guy or the girl just has this glazed look and, and looks like they're just walking on mud, okay? You can, you can notice social death from a mile away. Breakup happens, a divorce happens maybe, or there's friendship loneliness that's going on. You can obviously spot physical death from a mile away because the heart stops beating. But spiritual death... It's not immediately noticeable or identifiable, and it's hard to notice, but it's real. And if you don't treat it as real, you're in grave danger, the Bible says. Now, here's a concerning question. How do you know whether or not you are spiritually dead or alive? How can you know that spiritually you have a beating heart? Second point, what it feels like. Okay. 
This is going to sound weird, but being born again first feels like you've been defeated. It first feels like you've been defeated. Where in the text did I get that from? Well, from Moses' helpless state in the basket. I know that primarily baby Moses here is meant to point to baby, baby Jesus. That is the ultimate thickest connection that we should emphasize. But there is also a subtle connection here that the author is trying to make of baby Moses' helpless state to our state. What did we read in our call to worship just now? Psalm 18. About, uh, the psalmist talks about God. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. There is a connection here. Whether we realize it or not, in our spiritual deadness, we are like helpless babes floating on treacherous waters. And unless God's sovereign hand intervenes, which is what happened in verses 5 to 6, we're done for. Let's go to verse 5 and 6. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. You know, a hard thing about the gospel is that it claims we are dead people that needs to be pitied. As the Egyptian woman took pity on this helpless baby, Moses. So one day I picked up Elena from school, my daughter, she's three years old. And I, I grabbed her from school, and her face was just, you, you know how you, after you cry for a long time, your face is red, you know, below your eyes is like bags, and you're just, you, wow, you've been crying, you know? Some of you have those faces. Uh, when you cry, I do, my wife does, Elena does too. And I saw her, my goodness, you, it's not just like a tear, you've been crying all day, what happened? And before I took her out, the teacher said, hey, Taser, I need to talk to you. And I was like, my goodness. What happened? Like something traumatic must have happened. And she told me, you know, today was a hard day for Elena. I said, okay. And she goes, uh, during playtime, one of the older kids who was a, a year older than her uh, told they were fighting, and, and he told her these words. And if you have a baby these are or a child, these are the three words they do not want to hear. Every kid knows this is the final low blow. If you say these three words, you've won the battle, okay? You know what they are? He called, he said to her, you're a baby. <laughs> and it ruined her. <laughs> I'm not a baby, you know? And she just went off and she was like, all day. <laughs> there's something. There's something, isn't there? That's not, that's just, you laugh because you know it's true. There's, there's something in us that hates to be called weak. There's something in us that hates to be called helpless because we don't want to be pitied. <laughs> I'm not someone that you need to be pitied, but that's exactly what being born again feels like. And we do many things, don't we, to avoid that feeling, to avoid others pitying us, to avoid crying for help, as Moses did in this basket. Some would rather go broke to keep up appearances than telling the truth and be pitied. Some people would rather be lonely and be really known in their time of need and cry for help. Many marriages, I tell you, have crumbled because the couple refuses to cry for help they would rather get divorced than cry for help and risk being pitied. Anthony Bourdain, he's a, he was a chef, a, a TV personality. He had a couple of shows in Netflix, a traveler. He had an amazing career, loved by so many people. Everyone was absolutely shocked when he took his own life. 
why would someone like that commit suicide? No one knew. And right after that happened, another chef called David Chang, who is a close friend of Anthony, posted a painting on social media of a boy riding a horse. And in the painting, the boy asked the horse, this is after Anthony's death, what is the bravest thing you've ever done? And the horse said, the bravest thing I've ever done is ask for help. Why did David Chang post that? To encourage others who are entertaining the thought of suicide to go and cry for help. It's okay. He's trying to tell us, it's okay. Cry for help. If the thought has entered your mind, and I know people in which details of how it's going to be done has entered their mind, cry for help. You know what this means? You know what David Chang knew? This means that David Chang knew, he knew that out there, there are some people who would rather die than say, help me. There are some people who would rather give their life away than be pitied. The lengths we have gone to avoid being pitied has been absolutely staggering. But that is exactly what it feels like to be born again. You first must realize you need help. You are spiritually dead. You are somebody that needs to be pitied. I am too. And there's nothing we can do to make our hearts beat. That's the first feeling, okay? But that's not all. Something else emphasized in this passage. You also feel an affection for God. Let's continue it. And we see that in the rebelliousness of Pharaoh's daughter to Pharaoh, okay? Who was it that drew Moses out of the water? Who was it that broke Pharaoh's command to kill all the male babies in verse 5? It was Pharaoh's own daughter. And you know, God is compared to Pharaoh a lot in Exodus chapter 1. That, that's the whole point of Exodus 1, comparing the king God and, the, and the, the king Pharaoh and how they're different. Here, the same theme is continuing again. God is being compared to Pharaoh again here. How? In that God does not rule his people with a heavy hand like Pharaoh because it doesn't work. Pharaoh used raw power to rule. And the result of that was an allegiance from his daughter that wasn't real. It was fabricated. The second Pharaoh wasn't around, the second she was alone, the second she was away from Pharaoh's eyesight, what did the daughter do? Disobey him. Why? Because raw power might mold your behavior, but it'll never melt a heart. Raw power might scare you into submission, but it'll never truly win you over. And that's a contrast being made here between the kind of king God is and the kind of king Pharaoh is. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people think God to be treated like a tyrant with raw power that just tells you to do stuff. God here is being contrasted to Pharaoh. He's not like that. What his people feel toward him isn't supposed to be this fabricated obedience only on Sunday mornings like Pharaoh's daughter here did to Pharaoh, but we are meant to have a deep affection for him, a deep love for him, a true allegiance that penetrates into our desires, not just behavior. So, okay, you want to know if you're spiritually alive, how do we know that we're born again? Here's a progression. First, you feel weak and defeated. You realize that you're a creature who has no ability to save yourself from death, true death, eternal, spiritual, real death, okay? It's as real as your physical death, and you realize that unless God sovereignly intervenes, as he did here in our passage, you have no hope. 
But the second thing is that you feel an affection for God. You know God as someone with more than just raw power, but you actually feel an affection to Him, a love for Him, a desire toward Him, an allegiance, unlike Pharaoh's daughter's allegiance to Pharaoh, but a true affectionate one. Okay, so being born again includes feeling helpless, desperation, and also affection toward God, but now what you're thinking is how do these two things connect? How does feeling helplessly desperate connect to me feeling an affection and truly having an allegiance to God? Well, let's continue our passage and our last point. Being born again, what it feels like, what it takes. Let's continue verses 7 to 9. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. You see God's sovereign hand here? The Pharaoh's, uh, Moses' mom did one last hope attempt, uh, maybe to never see her baby boy again, and then he got him back. The, the obvious unsaid here is that this wasn't a coincidence. God's sovereign, gracious hand was all over it. So what does it take to be born again is God has to intervene. We can't do it on our own. No amount of Bible reading can cause your heart to breathe. It can't. He must come. But How? How does he intervene? Let's go to verse 10. When the child grew older, we think five to eight years, we're not sure, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses' mom brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, here's another connection to Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, we saw earlier that Moses and Jesus both went through an unlikely birth narrative. Both Moses and Jesus were saved through a tyrannical ruler or emperor at the time who wanted to kill the male babies. But also, both Moses and Jesus had the meaning of their name described after they're named. Okay, Moses meaning, I drew him out of the water. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was born? What does it say? Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Name, meaning. Moses, name, meaning. Jesus. This is huge. Do you see? It shows us that, yes, there are many similarities between Moses and Jesus, but there's one infinite difference. What is it? Who is Jesus? He is God with us. How does God intervene? In other words, the story of Moses is meant to point to one day, the one who will mediate between God and his people is not just another man, but it's God himself. And how will he mediate? (laughs) See, Moses, here's another difference. Moses was able to mediate between God and his people because he escaped death when God drew him out of the water, verse 10 says. God, however, mediated for his people, not by escaping death, but by dying on a cross. He was not pulled out of the water. He drowned himself in the wrath that we deserve. How can you be born again? How does the fear and dread of spiritual death, which I hope you feel, 
turn into a deep affection for God is when you realize that in order for you to live, God must die. It's when you realize your king had pity on you and drew you out of the waters of death by plunging himself into it. Then, then you'll find your heart having an allegiance to him that goes beyond Sunday morning. My goodness. Then you'll find your heart being affectionate toward him. That's what it means to be born again. <laughs> Are you born again? Until you receive this sovereign intervention, your heart may be beating, your reason may be working, your soul may be feeling, but do not be fooled. You are dead. That is both the hardest thing and the most loving thing anybody can ever tell you. Until you receive this sovereign intervention, he died for you. This is the point. He wants you for himself so that you may glorify him and give him an allegiance that's not just based on raw power, but of love. Come, come to life by receiving his death and find your heart, friends, truly beating, affectionate for him, your God and your Redeemer. Let's pray. How undeserving my stone-cold heart is and was. How hopeless I am. How unable I am to cause myself to live unless you sovereignly intervene and take my place upon yourself. The cross says that you love us and that you want us, although we don't deserve it. The cross says we are more sinful and dark than we ever dare to admit, but yet we are more loved than we ever dare dream. Moses came and mediated and brought us the law from you. You came to fulfill the law, the very thing we could never do, and trade places with us as you give us the righteousness that you earned. What an amazing gospel story. What an amazing narrative. Makes every tear worth it. I beg you, Father, your spirit would work today in the hearts of the men and women here. Because no matter how well this passage is preached, it confesses it cannot Bring us life unless you sovereignly intervene. Intervene. We beg you, have mercy. Cause our hearts to live. Bring us to a fear of death, a spiritual and real death. And lead us to an affection towards you by seeing the death you died so that we can live. In Jesus' name we pray.